Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter number 15, and uh, let me say thank you to all those who worked so hard to make sure that wedding could take place yesterday. I know there was a lot of hard work that went into it. I'm eternally grateful. I know Stephen and Hannah are as well, and uh, we thank the Lord for what he did. And I'm thankful for you visitors being here today. What a blessing. You probably had to drive past a half dozen churches before you pulled in our parking lot. I know uh, that's not lost on me, and uh, I'm thankful that you're here today. Hope that you feel welcome and at home in the Lord's house. First Samuel chapter number 15. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. First Samuel chapter 15, verse number 1. The Word of God says that Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek, the Amalekites, did to Israel how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together, numbered them in Telaim and 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart. Get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. When Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, It was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for these sweet people that have gathered here today to worship you. The liberty, Lord, that we have felt here this morning uh, to worship and to magnify you, Lord, and, and to testify of you and to give you praise. Lord, what a precious thing. I was glad when they said we'd come into the house of the Lord. Lord, I just pray that this morning in, in a group this size, it would not be a surprise to know there could be one that does not know Christ as their Savior. And they've got religion. They have no relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's the case, I pray you'd show them that you love them, that you care for them, that you sent your son to die for them on Calvary, and that they can be saved today. And Lord, it certainly wouldn't be a surprise in a group this size to think there could be some that uh, have some matter in their heart that stands between them and you, some uh, matter of sin or disobedience that they've allowed to creep up and take root in their life. And I pray that the Holy Ghost would deal with it this morning. Show us, Lord, that which is most needful in our life, Uh, that which either must be added or taken away, Lord, that which must be adjusted or shored up, 
But whatever it is, Lord, we ask that You would reveal it to us. Show us our greatest need that we might be made more like the image of Christ. And we'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You. Thank You for the cross of Calvary. Thank You for Jesus Christ that died in our place for our sins uh, on Calvary's hill. That we could go free. That we could be pardoned. That we could be redeemed. That us, a child of hell, could in His image shine. That we could be a child of God. Lord, thank You for the cross of Calvary. Thank You for the salvation freely offered to all those that will come unto You. Lord, we love You. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Samuel chapter number 15, we have a turning point in the life of a man named Saul. Now, Saul is the king over the nation of Israel. And he has heretofore, we could say, been a fair king. He was not God's choice of king, but the people wanted a king. They desired a king to rule over them. And and granting that desire, the Lord permitted uh, for them to make Saul to be king over Israel. Let me tell you how good Saul, how good God is. God even tells Saul, says, if you'll follow me, if you'll serve me, then I will bless you and I will honor you and I will use you as king over Israel. You say, preacher, what does that mean? It means God's no respecter of person. Amen. He don't pick winners and losers. Uh, he don't pick this crowd. He ain't picking out a baseball team. Somebody say amen to that. But if you'll approach unto God in sincerity with a contrite heart, God will receive you. Even though this thing started bad for the nation of Israel, God looks at Saul and says, if you'll follow me, if you'll obey me, I will honor that obedience and I will bless that obedience and I will bless the nation of Israel because of it. Uh, Saul uh, does some good things. He does some bad things. He's not the most spiritual man by any stretch. But uh, we can say that up until this moment, he has been a fair king. He has been a decent king. But when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find an event in Saul's life that marks a departure from obeying and following the Lord. God gives a commandment, says, I want you to go and destroy this people called the Amalekites. Now, before we get all high and mighty, say, how could God do such a thing? These people had attacked the people of God when they had come out of Egypt. They had abandoned them. They had extorted them and exploited them. And we've got a just God. Amen. And so whenever they rose to power, he said, now I want that justice executed upon the Amalekites. So he says, Saul, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to go and be the arm of my justice. I want you to go and I want you to destroy the Amalekites. And because this is a matter of justice and not mercy, I don't want you to leave anyone alive. I want you to wipe them off the face of the earth. Saul goes and uh, there's a great victory that takes place. Uh, and he conquers the Amalekites. But we find that rather than obeying the Lord, Saul makes a foolish decision. He takes matters into his own hand. We could maybe say it this way, that this story that is before us this morning unfolds with four distinct events. I would say, number one, we see that there is a plain commandment that goes forth. It says in verse 3, Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. In other words, God's Word was very clear about what was expected of Saul. Uh, he didn't give him a bunch of criteria to go through. He didn't give him a worksheet to work off of. He said, listen, I want you to go and destroy all of the Amalekites. Saul chooses to complicate that by misinterpreting what God had said, denying what God said. Can I say to you this morning, the Word of God is very plain. 
Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, sometimes I read the Word of God. There's things that I don't understand. And I would agree with you there. Uh, listen, I've been preaching this book for 15 years. There's things I don't understand. I expect when I've been preaching it for 50 years, there'll be things that I do not understand uh, in my Bible. Things There's always room for growth. There's always room to learn more and to gain knowledge. But the Word of God is very clear about what is right and what is wrong. It is man that comes in with situational ethics and tries to uh, complicate what the Word of God teaches. There's a plain commandment given here. This is what's right. This is what I expect of you. And I'm just going to go ahead and make a bold statement this morning. There there, Undoubtedly, there are people uh, that are in this city. There may be people in this room. You've never read the Bible yourself. I don't mean from cover to cover. There's plenty of people who have never done that. But you might have never held a Bible in your hand and read it. There might be people here that when I say the name of Jesus, you don't know who that is. It has to be explained to you. And listen, that's not something to be ashamed of. Every one of us, there was a time when we did not know Uh, But let me just make a bold statement. Right down here in the buckle of the Bible belt that we're living in, we have more exposure to the truth of the Word of God than any people in any time in history on the face of the earth. The Word of God is available to us. And let's just go ahead and quit playing games about this thing. Most of us know what's right. Most of us know what's wrong. We can try to inject all of the relativism and all of the moral relativism, the situational ethics we want. But if we get honest the way that God sees us, we have to admit that we know what's true. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. There's a great many things that may have been legislated, but it has not been vindicated. There are things that society may have said this is okay, but we know from the clear teaching of the Word of God that it is not okay. Can I say in your life and in my life, Uh, When there are areas of confusion, that's one of the things the sweet Holy Spirit does is He deals with us about the sin in our life. There's a plain commandment that is given. We see in verses 4 through 7 that there is a partial compliance that takes place. Uh, Saul starts out well. He gathered in verse number 4 together uh, the people and numbered them and tell him 200,000 footmen, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. He started out right. In verse number 7, he even stays right. It says, Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore that is over against Egypt. In other words, we could simplify it this way. He started out obeying the Lord. He had good intentions. He had a good plan. He had the help of God. He had everything he needed to live in obedience to the Lord. But we find it did not wind up that way in his life. There are a great many that start out right but don't wind up right. You could give uh, name after name. I could give name after name. It wouldn't edify it. It wouldn't encourage and It would be a waste of time. But suffice it to say, we've seen plenty of people in our life, they started off serving God, but somewhere along the way, they got distracted, they got discouraged, they got defeated, they got drawn away like Demas of this world, grabbed a hold on them and pulled them away from faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. They started off good. They started off serving the Lord. And can I just say, I'm raising two boys right now. Well, my wife is. I show up occasionally. Um, and she's doing a wonderful job. And I praise the Lord for the good start that they're getting in life. But just because you start good, that don't mean you wind up good. Hey, I went to Christian school. Man, I tell you story after story of people that uh, were raised in Bible-believing churches, were raised, had they had been insulated away from a lot of the things that the world tries to pour into the life of young people, but still they made their choice to live in disobedience to God. Don't take for granted just because you start out right, you're going to wind up right in the way you live. There was a partial compliance. Number three, I see there was a perilous compromise. 
says in verse number 8, He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Here's what happened. Saul looked at it and he said, wouldn't it be a shame to just kill all these fine animals? Instead, in his own human wisdom, he said, I'm going to help God out. God had a pretty good plan, but let's tweak it a little bit. Let's see if we can help God out. And instead, I'm going to go my own direction. Anytime we deviate from the clear teaching of the Word of God, uh, we are setting ourselves up for destruction and failure. And that's what happens when we sin in our lives. And listen, if you're sitting here today, if you're drawing a breath, there are times in your life when you do wrong, when you sin, when you disobey the Lord. There's some people would like us to believe that a person can get so sanctified and spiritual they never sin. If it's ever happened, I ain't never seen it. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, here's the reality. We're going to deal and contend with this uh, human flesh until God eradicates that flesh and gives us a glorified body until we die one day and are given a new body that's not prone and susceptible to sin. So in your life and mine, there are always, there are times that we sin, that we live in act, in disobedience. And when that happens, it is invariably because we have looked at what is right and wrong and chosen a path of compromise between the two. Saul did not say, hey, this is wrong. I'm going to do it anyway and I don't care what anyone thinks. Instead, he said, God gave me clear commandment. God gave me clear instruction. But I believe there's a little room here for me to go my own direction. I see a perilous compromise. And then we notice there's a prophetic condemnation. Verse number 10 says this, Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. By the way, don't balk at that word repenteth. Sometimes people get the wrong idea when God uses the term repent. Our concept of repentance is but an image of what God expresses. Here's what I mean by that. God don't never change His mind. He's the Lord God. He changeth not. But He was willing to bless Saul and to honor Saul and to use Saul when Saul was obedient to Him. When Saul chooses not to be obedient to the Lord, it's not disconsonant. It's not out of keeping with God's nature and God's immutability for him to say, you have broken that. Because of that, I'm going to change the way I'm behaving towards you. That's simply all the Lord means. He's not saying he's changed his mind. He's saying Saul's changed his actions. And in light of that, the way I'm using and treating him is about to change in his life. It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. Now, isn't this an interesting comparison? What does Saul say later on in verse 13? Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. What does God say about Saul's actions in verse number 11? He says he hath not performed my commandments. Can I say this? It don't matter what we say about our sin. It matters what God says about our sin. It doesn't matter what the world says about our sin. It matters what God says about our sin. It doesn't matter what our friends say about our sin. It doesn't matter what social media says about our sin. It doesn't matter if we can get all of society to make excuses for us and clap for us and applaud us and appreciate us and encourage us. It doesn't matter what any of those individuals think of our sin. There's only one, the book of Hebrews says it this way, with whom we have to do. In other words, the one we got to deal with, that it matters. And that's God. So what matters is what He thinks of our sin what he says about our life and our behavior and the choices that we make. And we find that though Saul felt pretty good about it, God had a different opinion. And God said, no, he's been disobedient unto me. 
Now, God sends Samuel to go and to make this pronunciation, pronounce this judgment unto uh, Saul. And when he does, there's an interesting thing that happens. I want you to notice it in verse 13. The Bible says, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel then asked him a question. I want you to notice it with me this morning. Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep? Let's frame it this way. Saul has a pretty good opinion of his actions. But here was the problem. The evidence of his disobedience was telling on him to everyone around him. Can I tell you this morning, hey, we can try to conceal our sin. We can try to sanctify it. We can try to pretend as though it's not what it is. But like it or lump it. That's the thing you say. I don't know what that means. I've never lumped anything. Like it or lump it, whether we want to admit it or not, sooner or later our sin is going to tell on us. He tried to uh, pretend. He tried to put a front up. But the evidence of his sin was apparent in his life. And in your life and mine, we may try to pretend as though our sin is not what it is. We may try to dress it up. We may try to pretend as though we have a valid excuse. But at the end of the day, before God Almighty, we cannot conceal our sin. We might as well instead deal with it. I would say this morning there are four powerful truths in this passage, and I want you to notice them with me. Let me say number one, when I read this passage, when I see Samuel approaching Saul and I can hear the farm animals in the background loudly bleeding and lowing, it reminds me of this truth. Number one, your sin cannot be hidden. The uh, lowing of these oxen, the bleeding of these sheep, the crying out of these animals, of course it did in that moment betray the fact that Saul had not obeyed the Lord. But I would say that when Saul uses that terminology, he is using it almost metaphorically, almost figuratively, almost symbolically. It goes beyond just merely why are the sheep bleeding, why are the ox lowing. What he's saying is this, you're telling me one thing, but your life is telling me a different thing. And because of that, I'm going to listen to your life. I ain't going to listen to your lips. It's symbolic of the fact that, try as he may, his sin could not be hidden. And when we read in this passage we learn that there are two groups of people it couldn't be hidden from. Look down in verse number 19. In making this pronouncement, I know we didn't read this as a part of our text, but in Samuel proclaiming to him the judgment of God, he says this in verse 19, Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil. By the way, isn't it funny how Saul tries to pretend like, oh yeah, you know, did we leave some sheep alive? Did we happen to not obey the Lord? When God speaks about it, He says, listen, it wasn't no accident. It wasn't no oversight. You flew upon the spoil. You ran to it like a child on Christmas morning running to that Christmas tree. You flew upon the spoil. Then He says this, look at it, verse number 19, and it's evil in the sight of the Lord. Can I say to you this morning, your sin cannot be hidden from the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Saul thought that Samuel didn't see him. He was hoping he could just ignore it, just pretend, just get away with it. You'd be amazed the things you can get away with in society if you just pretend like there's not a problem. It's basically the governing principle of our government right now. There's a a political terminology and it's called gaslighting. You know what it means? It means to treat you like you're crazy for noticing. 
That's exactly what Saul's doing here. He comes up on Samuel and says, Blessed be the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And here's what he's hoping that Samuel would do. He was hoping he would ignore those sheep, ignore those oxen, and help him maintain the facade of his hypocrisy. That's really the great dirty social contract of the society we're living in today. You ignore my sin, and I'll ignore your sin. We'll all pretend like what we know to be wrong, what we know to be corrupt, what we know to be vile is not that very thing. We'll just pretend. And as long as I won't call out your sin, you won't call out my sin, and we'll just all pretend like we're okay in the first place. Boy, that would be great if the only person we had to deal with about our life and conduct was another person. Here's the problem. We deal with a holy, immutable, righteous, thrice holy God. And He's unwilling to help us play the part of the hypocrite. He'll help us but He won't help us be a hypocrite. He'll help us be holy, but He won't help us be a hypocrite. And whenever it comes down to it, Samuel looks at him and says, Saul, you may have hidden this from other people. You may have hoped to hide it from me. But from the moment that you disobeyed, God saw your disobedience. Listen, wouldn't we all be helped if we just quit playing the role of a hypocrite and get honest with God? God sees how we're living anyway. What a, what a more futile thing could there be imagined than to pretend as though we're righteous with God when there's no basis for it. God knows us. God knows you better than you know you. So you might as well go ahead and be honest with Him. I would say that His sin could not be hidden from the eyes of the Lord, but look at verse 16. Samuel says this unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. Now remember, whenever Samuel first approaches Saul, there's been no discussion initially about his disobedience. Saul's the one that initiates the conversation. He comes up to him and says, Blessed be the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel asks him that piercing question, What meaneth then? Men, whenever Saul begins to make excuses for why it's that way, here's what Samuel says to him. He says, I want you to hang back a little bit. I'm going to tell you what God told me tonight. Can I say that the reason Samuel picked up on it was because he was listening. And I would say it this way. Your sin cannot be hidden from the eyes of the Lord, but your sin can't be hidden from the ears of the listening either. People that pay attention to our lives will know when there's something wrong in our life. I can't tell you the times that I've had people get mad at me. They thought I got up preaching and I didn't. I've had people that I didn't even know their name accuse me of reading their mail. <laughs> I mean, people that I, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about their life. I didn't know what was going on in their life. I just got up and tried to preach, try to please the Lord. And they came to me and accused me. Preacher, how did you know about this? How did you know about that? And I always try to tell them, I, I don't know nothing. Somebody say amen to that. That's my standard rule when I'm interrogated. Can I tell you? When I get interrogated, my standard rule is I don't know nothing, alright? <laughs> and I look at them and I say, I, I don't know anything. I, 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 don't, I don't know anything going on in their life. But here is the reality. The one that was dealing with them did know what was going on in their life. And very often that is echoed by the fact that other people that know and love God in their life have been praying for them, have been encouraging them, have been dealing with them. You know why? Because it's apparent to those around them that something's wrong. We can try to hide our sin. We can try to pretend. And I'm not saying that people around you have some kind of psychic ability. I'm not saying they, they into, uh, you know, intuit what's going on in your life. But it don't take a Svengali to see when somebody's trouble. I don't even know what a Svengali is. I hope I didn't cuss, Ken. Somebody Google that for me and tell me later. It, it, listen, it don't take a rocket scientist. You, you, don't, you don't have to be a psychiatrist to look at some people's life and see brokenness, see troubledness see burdens. And in your life and mine, when we allow sin to get in our life, 
We will only grow emboldened in that sin and it won't be long before it begins to break the hearts of those around us that love us, that care about us. They see something wrong in our life. We can pretend for a while. We can fool some, but we won't fool everybody. And if you live in sin long enough, it won't be long it will become apparent in your life, in the miserableness of your life, in the disobedience of your life, in the bitterness of your life. Samuel knew because he was listening. I'll be honest with you, there's people looking and listening at our lives. And I'm not saying they're the primary concern. The Lord is the primary concern. Uh, But if we live in disobedience for any amount of time, it won't be long. People will see that there's something wrong. Your sin, it cannot be hidden. I see a second truth here. And that's that your sin cannot be hushed. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, try as he may, and I'm sure if Saul had the ability, he would have quieted those animals. But still, they cried out. I thought about what this must have been like for Saul himself. I mean, a battlefield is a busy and chaotic and and hectic scene. And in the aftermath, I mean, there's dead and dying men. There's people weeping and crying out in pain. And in the midst of all of this bedlam, all of this chaos, there's all these farm animals that keep crying and crying and crying. They are an ever-constant reminder to Saul that he has disobeyed the Lord. Without seeming irreverent, can I say this, that For us uh, believers that are living in this day, in this New Testament day, this dispensation of grace, this church age, we likewise have one that will keep bleeding in our ear, keep lowing in our hearing about the sin in our life. When you and I disobey the Lord, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to reprove us of sin. He shows us when we've been disobedient to the Lord. Now, if you're lost here today, you might be able to sin and it not bother you as far as your heart and your mind a bit. But for a saved person, if you're saved by the grace of God, you sin, it's going to bother you. It's going to bother you. And try as he may, Saul, he couldn't hush that sin. He tried two different things to do that. I would say this, number one, you cannot hush your sin by reinterpreting the bleeding. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, listen to what he says in verse 13. Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Uh, Can I just, at, at the risk, I hope this don't sound offensive, But that was a stupid thing to say. That was a dumb thing. You know, people say, no dumb questions, no dumb answers. I've heard some (laughs) that would pass the test. This was a dumb statement. And Samuel's ironic statement back to him, his question, the power, the bite of it is summarized in the fact that Saul's uh, statement was foolish. When he says, what meaneth in the bleeding of this sheep? That is a rhetorical question. And he's saying, dummy! I can hear the sheep. What do you mean that you've uh, obtained and observed and obeyed the commandment of the Lord? Here's the only thing I can figure. The only thing I can figure is at first that bleeding probably bothered him. At first it probably troubled him. At first it probably pricked his conscience. But then he began, the more he listened to it, to reinterpret it as not being an indictment against his uh, life and his actions, but rather being an endorsement of them. He began to call it the spoil. Well, now isn't that interesting? God didn't call it the spoil. He called it that which must be destroyed. He starts to call it the spoil. Here's what he did. He reinterpreted what all of this meant so that instead of it bothering him when he heard that, it encouraged him when he heard that. You know why moral relativism and and the redefinition of words is such a rot and vile thing in our society? Because it's through the Word of God that God deals with His people. 
one of the reasons our society is unraveling in the nature that it is is because people have embraced moral relativism. They have embraced the idea that all truth is relative, that no truth is absolute. And it has created a society where I can say one thing and you can hear another. I could say one thing to you and you could hear an entirely different thing. Or we maybe could say this. What should have been an indictment against his life, Saul sat back and said, look at all the spoil that I've gotten for the Lord. Man, listen, I don't have time to dig into this. I'd love to. There's a big conversation to be had about televangelism and health and wealth, prosperity, garbage uh, this morning. This idea that external success is an endorsement of internal spirituality. That is not the case. If it was, they wouldn't have nailed our Savior to the cross. Somebody say amen. But suffice it to say this morning, just for the sake of the message, that we have an amazing ability to do academic, intellectual, psychological gymnastics and make it seem as though, though it's obvious we're living in disobedience to God, that somehow it's okay for us. The Bible warned against this in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 5 said this, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How do they do that? Well, he says in verse 21, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Here's the way that Saul did it. He said, what a shame it'd be to kill all these animals that we instead could sacrifice to the Lord. I know God said to destroy them, but I think it would be more wise if we kept all these animals. We're helping God out after all, so I'm just going to go my own way, do my own thing, do that which is right in my own eyes, and I'll trust that God will accept it anyway. A great many people are living a life characterized by this. I'm going to live my own way and trust that God will accept it anyway. Listen, friend, that may have flown had it not been for the fact that God has given us His precious Word. He's told us what is right. He's told us what is wrong. And you may try to redefine and readjust it in your mind, but it won't change the immutable Word of God. He tried to by reinterpreting the bleeding. And then number two, he tried to by reassigning the blame. Down in verse number 20, Saul said to Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. Let me pause there and say this. Even in his defense, he is condemning himself. Because God told him to kill everyone. Even in his defense, he is condemning himself. But then he says this, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Down in verse 24, Saul says this unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words. That sounds pretty good, don't it? Then he says this, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Boy, we've heard this. This is a broken record. We've heard this before, right? The woman which thou gavest me, she told me to eat of it. (laughs) We've heard this before. I mean, hey, since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been trying to shift blame for their own personal choices and actions onto somebody else. Isn't it amazing how it is the war cry of society that our life is our own and we make our own choices and decisions until it comes time to stand before God? Then all of a sudden, it's it wasn't me. <laughs> it was everybody else. He said, I've obeyed the Lord, but it's the people that have done this thing. You know the problem? is you know better and God knows better. God didn't send Samuel to the people. God sent Samuel to the king. Why? Because Saul had the governance and authority over the people. 
It wasn't those people. And I'm not saying they were free of guilt. God no doubt dealt with them in perfect righteousness. But for Saul's sake and in Saul's mind, it shouldn't have mattered what the people did because we have a just God. Can I promise you, hey, listen, there won't be a single thing you're held to account for before God that you shouldn't be held to account for. And the other side of that coin is this. There won't be a single thing that you should be held to account for that you won't be held to account for. We can try to reassign blame. We can try to shift blame and pretend like it's somebody else. And that may work for society. By and large, it does work for society. But one of these days, we ain't going to be dealing with society. We're going to be dealing with the sovereign God who knows all things and is over all things. I'd say your sin can't be hushed. Number three, I, I see that your sin cannot be holy. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, Saul's first line of defense. He shows up and he says, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says, Why do I hear sheep? (laughs) And Saul's reply is this. Verse number 15. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, I know this looks bad, but it's not what it appears. Don't believe your lying eyes, Samuel. It's not as it appears. In fact, we're not here disobeying God. We're actually, and you're going to find this hard to believe, Samuel, we're actually here doing the bidding of God. I know how it appears to you, but you're incorrect. And here's the reason he says, I know that we disobeyed the Lord, but we had a real good reason for doing it. Can I say this? It don't matter what your reasons are. That felt good to say. I don't know why. I don't know if that says something about me or about you. But it felt good. Let's try it again. It don't matter what your reasons are. What matters is what is right and what is wrong. Saul looks at him and says, we had a real good reason for doing this. I would say this. Your sin can't be holy even with noble motives. The ends do not justify the means. That's human wisdom. Were we not be able... I'm going to say this right. If it was not for the fact that we're able to see the end by the means, then maybe we could say the ends justify the means. Here's the problem. The Bible has told us what unrighteousness leads to. The Bible has told us what righteousness leads to. Unrighteousness does not lead to righteousness. Uh, we cannot start and, pr- and proceed in a corrupt manner and expect for incorrupt results. The reality of the matter is this. It don't matter what your motives are. What matters is your actions. Now, somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute, preacher. I've heard people preach my whole life and say that one of these days God's going to judge the motives. That's exactly right. God is going to judge the motives. So claiming that you had good motives when in fact you didn't because good motives produce good actions is not going to hold before God. It is true, a person can do the right thing, do it with wrong motive, and God will take that into account as He deals with them. But it is equally true that you may do uh, the wrong thing and have a good motive, and that good motive is of no material interest to God. You know why? And I am just sum it up with one New Testament verse. Paul said this, that God's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We don't have to use disobedience to try to accomplish things. God's given us a path of obedience to accomplish things. I would say even with noble motives. What was the Lord's answer to Saul's good motives? Verse 22, Samuel said this, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. He said, that's all good and well, Saul, but here's what God would rather have had. He would have rather had you obey. It's amazing that Saul would take this line of reasoning. He says, wouldn't God appreciate a few more sheep instead of my obedience? I'd say this, God has all the sheep He needs. Hey, listen, He he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Maze Jackson, you saying He owns the hills and the taters in the hills. Amen? He owns all of it. He doesn't need that. And here's the way we frame that in modern minds. I know that I'm not living obedient to the Lord, but I'm still going to church and that ought to be enough for God. Like God's only concern is getting your hind in in a church pew. I, I know I'm not living obediently to God, but hey, I'm still singing in a choir. I'm still teaching a Sunday school class. I'm still uh, serving the Lord. I'm still doing all these things. And I'm such a superstar that God should overlook those other things. Because hey, at least I'm showing up and doing what He wants me to. Here's the reality of the matter. God is not interested in bribing you. He does not want your negotiation or your bargaining. He wants your obedience unto Him. Even with noble motives. And then I'd say this. I sort of preach this, so maybe this will go quickly. No promises. But look at verse 30. Uh, whenever this happens, Samuel looks at Saul and says, God has rent the kingdom from you. God is done with you. And he turns to leave. Now, one would think Saul would be crushed by this news. One would think he would have said, I, my, my life is over, my reign is over, my kingdom is over. Listen to how he replies, verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. This is an ugly scene. And what really takes place here is Saul says this, I know God's done with me but would you please help me keep appearances with the people? He asked Samuel to come and bless and honor his fake, false worship before the people of Israel because he cares more what they think than he does what God thinks. Hypocrisy is rooted in misplaced values and priorities. It suggests that what people think of us is far more important than what God thinks of us. That's what makes us a hypocrite. We come to uh, others and we say, well, I know that God knows there's something wrong in my life. I know God knows there's sin there, but I can live with that. But I couldn't imagine people down at the church house thinking I'm living in disobedience. So I'll just go ahead and play the role of a hypocrite and pretend as though I'm something that I'm not. I'd say it this way, even with noble motives and even with notable ministry, uh, it won't hush and it won't make holy our sin. Say, so, preacher, what do we do with it all? Well, let me sum it up this way. I would say your sin cannot be hidden. It cannot be hushed. It cannot be holy. So what do we do with it? Look down with me at verse number 32. Then said Samuel, Bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. He said, Listen, we all said a lot of things in the middle of the battle we didn't mean. And Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Cut him up. Cut him to pieces. Samuel showed Saul what Saul should have done in the first place. I'd say it this way. Your sin, it can't be hidden. It can't be hushed. 
It cannot be holy. And so it must be hewed down if it's going to be dealt with. Samuel gives us an example of how we deal with sin in our life. The first thing we notice is that it, it must first be exposed. I think it's, it's almost comical the way that Agag comes and sort of skulks up and, and slides up beside Samuel and says, listen, Samuel, we all said and did things in that battle that we didn't really mean. Surely the bitterness of death is past. I mean, surely you wouldn't kill somebody like me. I'm not such a bad guy after all. And Samuel's response is astounding. Instead of saying simply, well, you know, the Lord told me to kill you. Sorry, Agag, and killing him. Instead of merely saying, well, you're the enemy and we have to kill the enemy. He looks at him and says this, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless. Agag comes up and says, Why are you going to kill me? I'm harmless. And Samuel says, Why don't we ask that to all the weeping mothers that are out there? In other words, he first exposed this man as the evil, depraved individual that he was. You know, if we're going to deal with sin in our life, we got to start calling it what it is. We got to quit pretending like it's harmless. We got to quit pretending like it was just something that occurred in the heat of battle and nothing else. We got to start calling it for as corrupt as it truly is. The first step to you getting your life, I'm talking about continually clean. I'm not saying perfectly clean. We all mess up. We all sin. We all, but I'm talking about the first step to you getting victory is start calling the enemy for what he is. Quit treating your sin like it's just a mistake, just an innocent oversight, and start calling it what it is. It's got to first be exposed, and then it must be executed. He cut them in pieces. Now, I'm not advocating you go out and cut your enemies in pieces, mainly because I'm not sure how some of y'all feel about me. Amen? But I find it interesting. Why would he hew them in pieces? He didn't want to leave any. If he had just cut an arm off, he could have gone on. Just cut one leg off, he could have gone on. We could maybe call what he did overkill, couldn't we? But it's not overkill when he recognizes all the families have been destroyed by this king of the Amalekites. He, he made sure that this king could never rise up again to hurt anyone else. Boy, Lord, help me say this right. Part of the reason we don't get victory over our sin is we don't, we intentionally don't deal with it the way that we ought to deal with it because we're not sure we're done with it. We're not really sure we're done with it. And so we always leave room and always leave occasions. Paul used this phrase. He said, give none occasion to the flesh. Part of us say, well, it just occasionally happens. Well, that's because you just keep giving it occasion. If you cut that thing out of your life, you'd find it a lot more difficult for sin to crop back up. I'm not asking anybody to be sinlessly perfect. There's only one that's ever been. But I am saying this. We've got to start taking our sins seriously. We can't listen. One, one old man of God said this. We'll never be broken uh, from our sin until we're broken over our sin. We've got to start calling our sin for what it is in our heart, in our mind, before an almighty, thrice holy God. We've got to quit playing games about this thing because we may be able to fool others. We may be able even to fool ourselves. But we're not going to fool God. One day we're going to see him face to face. Let's bow together. The musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I will have an invitation. I'll probably ask a couple questions, but you shouldn't have to wait for that if God dealt with you in your life. You should just go ahead and find your place down here. Don't give occasion to the flesh to chicken out on being obedient to the Lord. If he dealt with you, find a place even right now. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus and may we get serious 
about our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name.